Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with school shooting expert Dr. Peter Langman. Peter is a psychologist who has written several books on school shooters, including Why Kids Kill, Inside the Minds of School Shooters, and his newest book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Peter's work has been cited in Congressional Testimony on Capitol Hill, and he has been interviewed by the New York Times, the Today Show, and over 500 other news outlets in 31 countries. After the Sandy Hook attack, the CEO of the American Psychological Association presented Dr. Langman's recommendations on school safety to President Obama. He has presented at both the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. and the FBI National Academy in Quantico. He maintains the largest online collection of materials relating to school shooters at schoolshooters.info. In 2018, Dr. Langman became a researcher with the National Threat Assessment Center of the United States Secret Service. And in 2020, he became the Director of Research and School Safety Training with DriftNet Securities. Peter and I had an in-depth conversation about the minds of school shooters. My biggest takeaway from our conversation was that while shooter profiles are very interesting to examine after the fact, they don't really address actions that can be taken to prevent school shootings from ever happening. Rather, good old-fashioned investigation is far more likely to be effective at preventing tragedy. I was also shocked to discover that school shooters commonly show signs of what they are planning to do, and that in order to reduce these tragedies, students and teachers must take action when a student makes comments about violence. We need to override thoughts such as, they're obviously not serious, or they're just doing that for attention. As Dr. Langman points out, the consequences of investigating a false alarm are not that bad compared to ignoring a real threat. I hope this discussion empowers you to speak up if you ever encounter a warning sign of violence. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Peter Langman today. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, so it's today's topic is, is not the happiest of topics, but I'm sure it is something that anyone that's curious about human behavior will be interested in, uh, and that is uh, school shooters. And you are a school shooter expert. Uh, you have a whole website uh, that's very interesting, uh, dedicated to sort of documenting uh, all kinds of uh, firsthand resources and, and information around this topic. Uh, why don't we just start by talking about the idea of the profile of a school shooter, right? A anytime you start talking about school shooting, you think, oh, there's a profile there. Somebody might imagine the you know, angry white male who's a loner right? Um, profile, it's one of the first things that people think of. Uh, why don't you start by walking us through some of these profiles and telling us sort of how much of the stereotype of the school shooter is true? Okay, well, if we were to draw a composite portrait of, I think, what a lot of people may think of as a school shooter, it would be a teenaged 
white male, um, probably a loner, misfit, outcast kind of kid who doesn't have friends, doesn't have a girlfriend, maybe never went on a date, isn't any good at sports, and probably gets harassed regularly at school. And though aspects of that are certainly true to some degree, that portrait really doesn't capture who they are. And if we tend to think of school shootings as acts of violence in which tormented kids seek out and kill their tormentors, that's very rarely what happens. That when there are targets in school shootings, very rarely are the kids going after anyone who bullied them, which means there have to be other factors we explore. But going back to the stereotype, probably the most true piece of that is that they're male, but they're not always male. There have been female school shooters, both uh, girls and women. They're not white as often as everyone thinks. There's more racial ethnic diversity in the population of school shooters than we may be aware of. They're not always loners. They're often not loners, in fact. They might not um, be poor athletes. They might actually be good athletes. They're often not bullied. Sometimes they are the bullies who go around threatening and intimidating other kids. Certainly some school shooters have been picked on in some cases severely. But again, that's not everyone. That's not even most of them. So when we talk about the idea of a, a profile, we have to realize there really is no valid profile that school shooters come in uh, many shapes and sizes, so to speak, that some are uh, the loner type, but others are surprisingly popular. And many are older than we tend to think. We often think of the teenager, as I said. But if we look at school shootings throughout the lifespan, it's about half divided um, between juveniles and adult perpetrators. Mm -hmm. So it's much more of a lifelong phenomenon than we tend to think. And when you're talking about older school shooters, a fair number of them have been married and have children. So the idea of a married school shooter with a family doesn't fit the stereotype that they're all, you know, these teenage kids. Yeah. I, uh, as I went through your book, which I'll, I'll just mention quickly, uh, your latest book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Um, as I was going through it, uh, the word that popped in my head was actionable. A lot of the information about the profiles isn't that actionable. It's not like you can say, oh, well, there's there's a, a loner white male. Let's focus on 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 that profile. Like most of it is are common traits. Um, is there in your research, have you come across anything, anything outside of actual evidence uh, that is actually actionable that you can kind of say, oh, this is this is a type of person we should really pay attention to? Well, apart from what you say is evidence of an impending attack, it's hard to say that there's anything that would be actionable in that sense. You know, even kids may be obsessed with school shootings and there's websites devoted to Columbine and so on. But even there, most of the people on those websites do not commit school shootings. So even when you see that kind of fascination, that certainly looks like a red flag and could be a red flag, it's not necessarily any indication of someone who's going to commit an attack. Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, one of, I think one of the 
the most poignant statements from the book was you can't use statistically common phenomenon to explain rare events that you know that really stuck with me and that's typically what you tend to encounter with these types of super rare events that even like even the most even a savvy statistical model becomes it becomes really really hard to predict these things because the events are so rare um now you did you do mention this idea that i found interesting uh called damaged masculinity that there's this there's this kind of personality uh or, or this this circumstance or situation around that you tend to find in a lot of these school shooter examples where they're the I don't know, maybe you'd call it like the ineffectual male where they're, uh, you know, they're not, uh, they're not a stereotypical male. They're, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not stoic in the face of adversity. They're not, uh, you know, muscular, you know, all kinds of these traits that would fall under the umbrella of damaged masculinity. Um, is that even something that, that, that schools could address or, or, or uh, focus on to, to, potentially prevent school shootings? Or is it something that, you know, at, at the point that you're already experiencing these feelings, it's kind of too late? You know, even if the school could identify kids who have a sense of not measuring up as males, by itself, that doesn't tell us anything in terms of danger, because I'm going to assume that every school has boys who feel like they're not measuring up to the ideal male standard that is not a warning sign of impending violence. So by itself, that doesn't really tell us anything meaningful in the way of prevention. Do you think that if they, I, I was thinking a lot about this, like, do you, do you think that if, if schools across the board started to create workshops for, uh, for males uh, in terms of, you know, teaching them about modern masculinity and kind of some of them, you know, throwing out some of the old notions, the, the old stereotypical notions of masculinity and teaching them about sort of modern versions of masculinity. Um, do, do you think it would even make a difference? Or like you said, is it just school shootings are so rare that it probably would just get lost? We don't know. I like to think that anything could be a step in the right direction, such as addressing masculinity issues or teaching basic social skills, how to ask someone out on a date, how to have a relationship, you know, anything that can help people be more effective in their lives, more successful, better adjusted, could make a difference. There's no guarantee because when we look at actual perpetrators, some of them are very disturbed people on whom such efforts may have no impact, but we don't know that and it, such efforts maybe could make a difference even if it didn't prevent school shootings, it could just help kids lead happier, better lives. Sure, yeah. Um, so if there aren't actionable sort of profiles for shooters, um, is there a profile for false alarms? Are, are, are there any characteristics about, uh, about you know, early on in an investigation that are associated with false alarms. You know, my my brain went to, you know, someone attempts suicide by taking pills. I mean, that's that's extremely serious. But, you know, you you hear like sort of the folk psychology is that, you know, if you're taking pills, it's a cry for help. Um, but it's not you know, they don't really want to kill themselves. Um, 
are, are there any attributes or indicators that that we could use to determine what a false alarm looks like or is it just we have to just investigate everything well we need to investigate everything to determine if it's a false alarm false alarm could just be um, two kids overheard having an argument um, and one says something like yeah you better watch your back or yeah, do that to me one more time, I'm going to kill you. And there may be no intent behind that, but you don't know that unless you investigate. And in, if an investigation uncovers nothing more than kid was mad and said something you shouldn't have said or didn't really mean, then you can decide, all right, no further intervention maybe is necessary. Or maybe you want to keep those two kids apart, or you know, there may be some uh, intervention you want to put in place. But if you follow up on that comment and find out that the kid's been talking about killing people for a long time, asking about where he can get uh, a gun, um, or maybe he has a gun and is going out target shooting and um, nobody, his parents don't know about that, and he's idolizing the Columbine killers. And as you do your investigation, you start seeing one red flag after another, then you determine, okay, maybe this is not a false alarm. Yeah. Um... The, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, 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 we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, about threats. Um, you know, the, the the ways in which school shooters will tip their hand. Uh, but before we we do that, um, I, I I did want to talk about how you mentioned the psychological classifications uh, of of school shooters. Sort of, you identify these three categories of 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 shooters, um, and it you know, I was thinking about that and I was wondering if you think that schools should take action uh, against, or, or they should take action if they find out that students, you know, fit any of these psychological classifications. So you mentioned, uh, you know, psychopathic versus, um, you know, a couple uh, versus traumatized. Um, are those types of things uh, something that a school should take action uh, towards, uh, or is that just something that is also more common? It's not really going to help. Well, let me just say the three categories are the psychopathic school shooter, the psychotic school shooter, and the traumatized school shooter. And I have to say that most people who are, who are psychopathic, psychotic, or traumatized never kill anybody. So again, we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions. So when you talk about should schools intervene if they see anyone falling into one of these categories, if intervening means um, trying to stop them from committing an attack, that would be you know, a vast overreaction. If intervening means you find out a kid's being abused at home, you take appropriate action, call Child Protective Services, that would be an appropriate intervention. If someone is developing psychotic symptoms, you know, if they're hearing voices, if they're having paranoid delusions, that warrants a mental health intervention. But we can't assume that someone who's having, you know, that kind of mental health issue or comes from that kind of a family is on the path to become a killer because that's still extremely yeah. rare, even within those three categories. Could you give a, a, a few uh, e examples? I know uh, we, we had a, a little conversation beforehand about not glorifying these these individuals, but for the sake of of, of curiosity, 
Um, could you give some examples of of those different of real world examples of those different types of classifications and what uh, how how they would differ? Okay, let's start with the psychopathic school shooter. Uh, an example I often use is Eric Harris, one of the two Columbine killers. Psychopaths are narcissistic. They're callous. They don't care about other people. They lack empathy for others. They don't really have a conscience in terms of guilt or remorse if they do something that hurts somebody. Not only do they not care if they hurt somebody, they may be sadistic, which means they seek out and enjoy hurting people and eventually killing people. So if you look at Eric Harris and you read some of his writings, you see a lot of statements of narcissism, um, writes about wishing that he were God so he would be officially higher than everybody else. You see a lot of callousness uh, writing about eliminating unfit people from the planet, just killing everyone who's inferior. You see sadistic fantasies of uh, raping girls he knew and tearing a human body to shreds with a knife and just you know yanking the body into pieces and how much fun that would be. So you see this really kind of cold-blooded, sadistic, callous uh, personality style. Now complicating the detection of this is that some of them are very good at what's called impression management. That means they know how to make a good impression when they want to. In other words, they're con artists. They can be very charming and seem charismatic and be you know, very attractive to people as an individual, hiding that dark side very effectively. Now that's not all psychopaths. Some are just more blatantly belligerent and abrasive and problematic, and it's all out in the open. So they're not all con artists. You can see different manifestations of that. But that's one example of someone who's you know, narcissistic, callous, sadistic, deceptive, and so on. Right. Um, and, and how about, how about these, uh, these other two categories? Because um, you mentioned that the, the traumatized category. So essentially, um, is, is it the idea that there is uh, an environmental event that has created, uh, like caused a shift in, in someone's personality so that would kind of put them on this dark path? And when we're talking about the traumatized shooters, it's not an event, it's a lifetime of events. So what we're looking at there is chronically and severely violent dysfunctional families. And that means both of the parents are alcoholic or drug addicted. One or both of the parents have a criminal history, maybe to the point of incarceration. There's physical abuse in the home. There may be sexual abuse either in the home, in the community, or in a foster home that these kids end up in because home is so unstable, they get pulled out. Um, these kids often bounce around from home to home and foster home to foster home, you know, mom's house to dad's house to grandparents and so on. So on top of the actual trauma of abuse, there's the ongoing stress of always starting over, maybe, maybe being always the new kid in the school, new caregivers, um, new town, no continuity with their friends, no continuity with their education. So you have the severe abuse and the chronic stress that goes along with living in a family like this. So again, it's not just one event, it's a lifetime of right. traumatic events. So for an example, 
We could look at uh, Jeffrey Weiss, who committed a shooting in Red Lake, Minnesota in 2005. He was 16 years old. Father uh, apparently had an alcohol problem and died in an armed standoff with police when he refused to surrender and shot himself and killed himself with a gun during the armed standoff. His mother was a severe alcoholic who physically abused him. Um, she sustains significant brain damage in a car accident. So Jeffrey lost his father to suicide and his mother to brain damage. Yeah. Mom had abused him uh, severely. Jeffrey wrote about that online. He bounced around from relatives, relative home to relative home to foster care, but you know, in and out again, this kind of um, meandering life that uh, was forced on him. He was depressed. He became suicidal himself. So it's not just one thing. It's all these life circumstances mm -hmm. that pile up to the point where he decided to become violent himself. You also mention uh, in the book, uh, and I would consider this probably the most disturbing part of, of, of the book, um, aside from just hearing the, the firsthand stories, is the fact that in so many of these cases, when you lay out the facts of the investigation after the fact, there were warning signs everywhere. Um, it was really hard for me to read that, you know, these pieces and the way, you know, the way you set it up where you don't know where it's going made it, made it all the more interesting. But um, uh, you talk about leakage and, 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 and threats. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which these events are, are, um, are previewed in, in some way? Sure. The idea of leakage is that kids leak their intentions. They uh, disclose what they're thinking of doing, and that leakage occurs in a variety of ways. Sometimes they simply announce it. They tell their friends, they, they brag about what they're going to do, or they po post it on social media. Just um, they put it out there very openly. And the fact that it's so open often leads people to not take it seriously because they think if you're going to do something like mass murder, you're not going to advertise it. And yet that's exactly what kids often do. They advertise it. In other cases, the leakage may serve a purpose. They may invite a friend to join them in the attack. So they try to recruit someone. In other cases, they warn their friends to stay away so they don't get hurt. So they may tell their peers, don't be in school wow. on Friday. You know, wow. I'm going to bring a gun. Or they might not say explicitly what they're going to do. They may just say, don't be in school. Something bad's going to happen. You know, it's going to be an evil day. Don't be there. So leakage could be to, as I said, announce, to warn, to recruit, um, may serve other purposes. What's so heartbreaking, as you're saying, though, is that so often no one took it seriously. No one took action on what they heard, and then people died. And that's a very disturbing aspect of doing this research is realizing how many lives could have been saved if different things had happened, if people had spoken up, if investigations were conducted and so on. Yeah, the, um, uh, and, and you actually mentioned some of the reasons why, uh, why individuals 
have a reluctance to report some of these uh, examples. Um, what do you think is the what do you think is the primary reason why these threats go unacted upon? I think the biggest reason is their peers just don't take them seriously. Maybe they've been friends for a long time. They grew up together. Um, how do you see your friend as a mass murderer? You know, it's just um, too bizarre to even um, take seriously. Or maybe the kid said it with kind of a smile on his face, so it looked like he was joking. In some cases, kids do take it seriously enough to ask, you don't mean that, do you? Or are you really serious about that? And then maybe the kid will say, no, I'm just joking. So then their peers feel like, well, I don't have to report it. It's just a joke. But it's not. And then the kid goes ahead and does whatever it was he said he was going to do. But I think it's that failure to take the warning sign seriously. That's probably the biggest issue. Yeah, I, I think about I've seen examples with suicide, right? It's always, you know, uh, oh, this person on social media, they're just, you know, they just want attention. And, uh, you know, I, as somebody with a, a background in psychology, I always, I always say to people, um, it doesn't matter if it's just for attention. It doesn't matter if it's just for attention because there, this is a behavior that cannot go unnoticed. And uh, from what I saw of some of the examples that, that, that you talked about in the book, um, you know, it, it seems like on average uh, people have a tendency to, to sort of approach these situations in denial. Right. You know, in some cases, like I said, if it's a friend of yours, how can you take that seriously? Especially if the kid's never been violent, you know? In other cases, um, they might be teachers or parents think, well, it's a good family. I, I know the parents or, you know, I, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town or that not something that would ever happen at our school. Even with all the attacks we've had, people still make those kinds of comments um, as if it can't happen here. And I think we need to recognize it can happen here. It can happen anywhere. We can't assume that just because we're a nice little town or we know the family and they're good people, that that means there's no danger. How, uh, how would you characterize the importance of stigmatization as well? People don't want to stigmatize other, uh, others uh, as being you know, weird or, or, or you know, uh, being violent or something like that. Uh, it, it seems to me as our culture has progressed over the past 50 or 60 years, we've become more accepting and less, uh, less prejudicial. Like we, 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 we don't prejudge as much as, um, as we, as our, as my, our parents' generations, right? It's slowly, we've gotten more and more accepting of others, but it feels like at the same time, we've also become more accepting of things that we shouldn't accept, like s statements like that. We should take those seriously. Um, how important of a role do you think um, that that stigmatization process or reluctance to label uh, young people is playing a role? I think that can be a factor. Certainly peers may not want to get their friends in trouble. They may think, all right, you could get arrested for this if I report them. I don't want to do that. You know, parents might not want um, to be the ones to report someone else's child. School might not want to upset the parents by 
you know, identifying someone as a potential killer. So I think that can be a factor. But for the school to investigate doesn't mean there's any drastic action. It doesn't require suspension or expulsion. It doesn't mean you have to call the police and have the kid arrested. Going back to the example of two kids having an argument, it may just be a matter of bringing the two kids in, sitting them down individually, asking them what happened, who said what, were there any witnesses, you know, you gather your information. There doesn't have to be any significant outcome like suspension, expulsion, or, you know, arrest. You're just trying to gather the information to decide if there's a safety issue or not. So there doesn't have to be any blacklisting here. Mm -hmm. Another way of looking at that is if you don't report it and there's an attack and people die and you had information that could have prevented that, you know, you're going to have to live with that. And no one wants to do that. No one should be in that position. Also, if you care about your friend and you don't report him, he's going to end up pretty much in every case, either dead or in prison for life or most of his life anyway. And so if you care about your friend, you don't want that to happen. And maybe if someone just talks to him and can get him off that path, everyone will be okay. So there's a lot of ways we can look at this to try to minimize people's reluctance to take action. In the book, you talk about uh, how threat assessment and good old fashioned investigation is the main way to prevent these things from happen from from happening. Um, it, it reminds me of of the same things that you see with uh, you know the post 9/11 world. Um, our our country was obsessed with profiling and. I believe that after all, all the dust has, has settled after in, in that, that sort of decade after uh, 9-11, investigating and gathering evidence was by far more useful than, uh, than, than this kind of profile and knowing ahead of time. And you kind of echo the same sentiment in the book. Uh, how do we uh, prevent these incidents from happening? What needs to take place or maybe what, what has changed uh, as we've learned more about how, how these things occur? What, what, what policies have been enacted and what still needs to be enacted? Well, initially in the wake of Columbine, in a lot of schools implemented things like lockdown drills and training and how to survive an active shooter and so on. And those things are important and could save lives, but those don't prevent the attack. Those are responses to an attack. So for whatever reason, as a nation, we focus more on being reactive than being proactive. And the proactive piece of preventing these attacks is threat assessment. And that means that you have a people, a group of people in the school who are trained to investigate and evaluate safety concerns. So that when there is a report from student, staff, parent, people have some idea of how to go about determining if it's a real threat or a false alarm. Now, some states now mandate threat assessment teams in every school. Most states do not, but I think overall, there is a growing recognition that we need to get better at threat assessment. So we, we can evaluate these things when they are brought to our attention. And part of that is having anonymous tip lines in place 
Some states have a statewide tip line, others don't, but the school district may have its own tip line because we need to make it easy for students and others to report what they know without feeling like they're putting themselves on the line. So having those anonymous tip lines in place is a critical piece in terms of getting the information to the threat assessment team in the first place for them then to follow up and investigate. Now, do you have confidence in a school's ability to conduct this sort of threat assessment? Uh, you mentioned that this example of Carl Pearson in the book and how uh, sadly, even with a lot of the, even with the, the school having all of uh, this knowledge, they were unable to, uh, to, to address this threat or identify this threat. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about how, you know, ideas get floated around every time there's a shooting around. Well, why, why don't the teachers have guns and stuff like that? And it's like, well, that is a solution, but that is not necessarily a good solution. Um, so when you see examples of the correct policies in place at a school uh, and it's still not working, does, does that give you pause or, you know, is it, should it be done at the county level or even higher? No, I think it's right for the schools to do it having the policies in place is not enough. You have to have the proper training for the personnel. And they had some training, but not enough. So they did some investigation, but not the comprehensive investigation that would have turned up more warning signs. And throughout the book, my book, Warning Signs, you know, every chapter ends with an example of a thwarted school attack. So when I'm trying to do among other things there is show that when people do speak up, schools can take action, maybe um, in conjunction with local law enforcement, identify the threat, intervene and save lives. So I think we know enough to say that threat assessment as a, a practice is the best practice in terms of preventing school shootings. Simply saying, oh yeah, we have our policy or we train somebody doesn't mean the school is really up and running with a, an effective threat assessment team. Right. Uh, how about how about this idea of um, holding parents accountable uh, legally for actions that their children take? Um, you know, if you own a pit bull and the pit bull gets off of its leash and bites someone. Uh, we have laws in place to uh, hold the owner accountable. And obviously there are, there are differences between a pet and, a, and a, having a, a teenager at home that might have access to a gun. Um, but do you, what are your thoughts on, on that as a policy? Do you think it would make a, a difference? That's a tough one. And I feel like that's kind of outside my domain as a psychologist. <laughs> I feel like that's more of a, a legislative um, issue. Um, typically in America, we don't do that, certainly not with school shootings. The, the one in the fall in Michigan is a very rare exception to charging the parents with any kind of criminal action. Um, historically, for whatever reason, that's not something that's been done in this country. Uh, whether it should be done, 
that becomes very sticky in, uh, in terms of what the parents knew, should have known, did, could have done, you know, in no case. Well, you, that I've well ever... let's, let's add, let, let's add to this a little bit. So if we assume that, that these individuals uh, in many, many, many cases tend to tip their hand, if parents, if, if you could prove that they tip their hand to their parents, or even, I mean, let's say parents, let's say they tip their hand to other people. Legally, it, it would be hard to argue, but at the same time, they had information, right? So do you think it would help to, to make this uh, a crime? Well, in none of the cases that I've ever studied, did the parents know that their kids were planning to commit a school shooting. So in terms of tipping their hand, they never tipped their hands to their parents. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. The parents did not know that. I think what we could promote, though, is the idea of firearm security in the home. Because when you're talking about juvenile school shooters, in the majority of cases, they're getting guns that are legally owned by someone else in their family, usually their parents. Could be an older brother, or it could be uncle's house, grandparents' house, etc. You know, Um so the guns are in the home, they're legally bought and owned, but they're not kept secure. So whether, I don't know how you address that, maybe a public education campaign, that to me is really a critical issue because if the kids can't get their hands on their guns, um, certainly not at home, that's a huge step forward. If they have to try to get them illegally out in the street or somewhere, more likely um, they would get caught, they might not want to take that risk, they might not commit the attack without, you know, the, the easy access gun at home. So firearm security in the home, I think, is a big issue. The, the uh, I'm sure there are examples of, of very violent uh, attacks that don't involve a gun at all. But uh, in, in your opinion, do you think the presence, like the, the psychological you know, access, the thought that I have a gun available. Do you think that that um, makes the violent act more likely? I think it might, because I think a lot of these kids feel so inadequate and weak that the idea of a gun is just very appealing and attractive because a gun has, a gun gives you power. You have the power of life and death once you have that gun in your hand. And for some of these really at-risk, desperate kids, that's a very strong appeal. Now, they might commit an attack without a gun. We had an attack at a school in Pennsylvania a few years back, and kids just brought in some kitchen knives and was able to slash or stab you know, 20 people, but no one was killed. You know, what a gun, especially a high-powered gun, gives you is incredible ability to kill people very quickly. So even if they commit an attack with a knife or some other weapon, the lethality factor is much lower. Uh, so in terms of preventing these, these tragedies, are there any solutions that, that you've played around with just in your head over the past decade that, you know, that it might not be something that is, would be accepted that, you know, no one would agree to it, but in your head, you know, that if this sort of policy were enacted, it would, it would make a dent, but it just, you know, 
whether it's, you know, something like, you know, metal detectors or searching everyone, obviously that's, that might be overkill. Um, but is, is there something like, you know, a, 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 a law or a policy that wouldn't necessarily be accepted by the general public that you think would make a difference? Well, we've touched on two things. One, mandating threat assessment teams in schools, and two, firearm security in the home. Those two things would go a long way. On a different note, you know, I've thought about the idea in the same way that we go to the dentist every six months or you get an annual physical, you know, as a psychologist, a mental health professional, you know, I'd like to see some sort of psychological checkup maybe every year, just like you have a, an annual physical, just to go in and talk to someone and, and kind of see how you're doing. And that would not only detect things early before they got to any extreme point, and early intervention is much better than late intervention, but it would just also normalize the idea that mental health is something uh, to be concerned about. And same way you, you take care with your physical health, you take care of your mental and emotional well-being. So that's an idea, you know, not to make it a law, but just to kind of sure instill that as a general practice, it would not only maybe reduce acts of mass violence, but also suicide and maybe substance abuse and um, depression and anxiety and yeah. you know, all kinds of things that people are dealing with all the time. But because of the stigma associated with seeing a mental health professional, maybe they're not getting the support they could benefit from. In all of the cases that you've looked at, uh, in what percentage of them were the shooters already seeing a professional counselor? You know, I don't have data on that. Some of them either were seeing or had seen someone at some point in their lifetime. Uh, most were not seeing a counselor or a therapist of any kind at the time of their attack. Um, so they didn't necessarily fall through the cracks um, if they had been in treatment, they may have been keeping their plans to themselves, um, essentially lying their way through the treatment because they didn't want anyone to stop them. Um, but in most cases, they were not involved in any treatment at the time of their attacks. So let's, uh, to wrap up, um, suppose that, uh, let's go a little bit outside of the school setting, because obviously there, you know, mass shootings take, can take place anywhere. Um, in terms of your advice to the general public, if you, um, if you know someone that is, let's say they're exhibiting some, some signs of maybe psychopathy, that you, you know that they're not really a, uh, 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 an empathetic person, um, maybe they've, they've, they've talked a, a little bit about, you know, oh, I should just, you know, uh, I should just go off and, you know, sh shoot people, be on the news or something like that. I mean, that's, that's overt, right? That, that, that type of language is overt, but something less overt. It's just, it's just someone that, that makes you pause when you think about how they talk or how they act. Um, what would your advice be as step number one? You know, if you have concerns about someone, you can talk to the person yourself and 
see, you know, are you seeing a professional? Have you ever considered seeing a professional? Maybe just have someone to talk to. It seems like you're, you're awfully uptight or you got a lot of anger. You know, I remember the time you said such and such made me a little concerned for you. And just see if, you know, a little support in that regard might get them to see a professional. So at that level, you know, there's no um, indication of imminent crime. So I think the best you can do is just gently try to steer them in the right direction. If it is that more obvious kind of comment, like you said, like, you know, referring to getting a gun and committing a mass attack, and often it is that obvious, you know, that's a matter for calling the local police. You can also call the nearest field office of the FBI or Secret Service. Both of those federal agencies are involved in threat assessment, have written reports on threat assessment, school shootings, how to prevent them, and so on. So besides the local law enforcement, you do have those federal agencies as well that you can turn to. Well, th- thank you very much for uh, being on today. It's, it's, it's not very often I get to talk to somebody that gives information that could literally save lives. So I, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. visit his website, schoolshooters.info, or head to Amazon and pick up a copy of his latest book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at whydoweedothatpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? Mm-hmm.